This is Kim Richmond, President of ASMAC, and on behalf of the board, I welcome you to another ASMAC podcast. What you're about to hear is a recording of one of our monthly luncheon presentations, recorded at Catalina's Jazz Club in Hollywood. These podcasts feature leading Hollywood composers, arrangers, orchestrators, and musicians talking about their lives in music. The luncheon talk begins with an excerpt from a video of an interview with Dwayne Tatro by John Burlingame. The full interview is available on our ASMAC website store. All right, Dwayne Tatro. Yes, sir. This is August 28th, 2015. Thank you for doing this with us. Let's start by asking when and where you were born. Born in Van Nuys. 1927, May 18, in a house. In those days, the doctor came to the house and you were born in the house. Well, when was the first time you picked up an instrument? When did you, when did you begin to play and what was that instrument? I got interested in playing the clarinet and I can't tell you why, but uh, I just can't think of why it was the clarinet. But I used to uh, mow lawns, pull weeds, little garden trips and all that kind of stuff until I got enough to buy a clarinet. <clears throat> so I went to a little shop, a music store in Santa Monica, and for $15 I got a clarinet. Doc Lando looked at the clarinet for me, and he said, it's cracked and it will never play in tune. So I went home and my dad, who was not real happy about my interest in music, but he wasn't going to have his son take advantage of it, so he came back with me. And he made the, the guy an offer that he couldn't refuse. I got the money back. My dad was a rough character. Anyway, uh, so that was the clarinet. And I was able to pay for lessons to begin on the clarinet. And I can't recall the first teacher, but he was principal clarinet at MGM in the orchestra. Eventually, I was able to get a saxophone. So you were presumably a young teenager, maybe 15 years old? Yeah. Right, 14, 15, and so I uh, pretty soon I was beginning to play uh, amateur orchestras, tenor and clarinet, and uh, <clears throat> slowly uh, my first gig was at the Veterans Hospital in West Westwood, three dollars a night on the weekend, one night, <laughs> and then me pulling weeds. <laughs> so, uh, and he so I'm in high school. But I began to play enough so that I'm picking up. And suddenly I get a call from Stan Cannon to our house. And I, I thought I'd died and gone to heaven. <laughs> anyway, uh, he said that they were with the Bob Hope show, the big, the, his band was, and uh, for the season, and they needed a saxophone player. And they heard about me through, I don't know, maybe the, the uh, I don't know how he heard about me, but in any case, he wanted me to come to the Long Beach Auditorium on uh, Tuesday night, which is uh, two or three nights away, and, uh, and, and consider going on the road with him. Well, how old were you? I was 16. So my dad said, oh no, you got to finish high school, you know, logical. So, however, I was crushed and I, I worked on them day and night for two days. Friday, borrowed some gas stamps because the war was up. 
and from the neighbors, and he took me to Long Beach. He watched the Bob Hope show. When it was over, Stan came out and sat down with the two of us. And he went, they went over details, you know, like that, and he went. So at one point he said, well, <clears throat> we're going to leave tonight. And uh, if Dwayne doesn't like the band, or if he doesn't work out, I'll make sure he gets right back home. So that clinched it for my dad. Can you imagine if I wouldn't like the band? <laughs> anyway. Uh, so off I went. At the age of 16? At the age of 16 with the Stan Kenton band. Did you play with Mount Torme at some point during this? Yes, I did. I, I have to remember that. That's really cool. When was that? Oh dear. <laughs> Bell had the Melatones. And he was trying to get in the movies, films. So he bought Chico Marx's library, because Chico had a big band. And I was in that band. And uh, we rehearsed and rehearsed and rehearsed. And then all we ever did was play for movie people to watch to see if they were going to hire him. <laughs> it was all about acting for him. But it was fun to play them in band, you know, they were good players. When was this? Was this before or after the Kenton experience? Uh, let's see. It would have been after. Yeah. Okay, so you came back um, and sure. finished high school, right? I finished high school, okay. So I'm curious to know when you started to get the urge to write more than play. Uh -huh. I think that was towards the end of high school when I started with Russ Garcia. Oh, so you, you studied with Russ Garcia? Yeah, uh, he was my mentor oh, uh, during the early years. And that was here in Los Angeles? Yeah. Well, I wanted to write for saxophone section, you know, because I knew about the instrument could do a little bit, and uh, I didn't know what the other guys did, but not <laughs> later. Anyway, so I wrote things like that, and as a matter of fact, there was a, a friend who lived in the neighborhood who played saxophone as well. And we used to rehearse at his house, five saxes. And somehow or another, a guy at uh, MGM, an, an, an orchestrator, he played the, the Gershwin Concerto. Wouldn't have been Calvin Jackson. It was, Calvin Jackson. Thank you. Anyway, he wrote for us, for our section. He came in and, and he sort of mentored me a little bit about, you know, doing so on. Uh, really a nice guy. I mean, I, uh, he's gone, of course. So that's when I got interested in writing, and, and that never ceased. And, uh, well, how long did you study with Russ? Probably, uh, well, as I told you, I think we were close friends. And I studied with him until probably uh, the Kansas days. And then uh, retained the friendship, which I think I mentioned uh, I was best man at his wedding and so on. We were close friends. Archer 5 and 11. <laughs>
stole my whole story. <laughs> well, friends and colleagues, uh, it was a problem to organize my musical uh, trip in 25 minutes for a period of 82 years. Closer? Okay. Uh, what I decided to do was put it in a sort of a, a perspective like the breaking waves of a musician's life because that's what happens to us. Things come and go and we, often we can't plan them. They just happen. Anyway, as a, uh, with the tip of my hat <clears throat> to our dear departed friend and my personal mentor, on aging gently and gracefully, I thought I might start with a joke. Of course, I'm talking about Van Alexander. <laughs> okay, the joke. Two young priests are about to take a vacation. <clears throat> Pardon me. They don't want to be seen as part of the clergy, so they go to the sea town area where they were going to relax on the beach, and they went to the local sports shop and bought clothes that would be like the tourists in the town. The next morning, they're on the beach, and sitting there, along comes a beautiful blonde, topless, and walks right up to him and says, good morning, father, good morning, father. And on she goes, and the two guys look at each other. Thank you. And they say, how did you know, you know? And so the next day they're out there with different clothes on and so on. Up she comes again, good morning, Father, good morning, Father. One of them says, young lady, how did you know that we are part of the clergy? She said, Father, I'm Sister Mary Elaine. <laughs> She's doing the same thing. <laughs> Okay, for my own uh, pontificating. <clears throat> the start for me, according to my mother, in the 20s and 30s, Tin Pan Alley had a publisher that sent out each month, if he belonged to the club, two new songs from Tin Pan Alley. And then on the back side of this thing were uh, you know, a few bars of two more songs that would be out the next month. And my mother played piano, a uh, reading type piano, and so I could hardly wait until she would play these things. And I would, once in a while, there was something that really struck me as, as uh, something I liked, harmonically probably. Anyway, I would ask her to play it over and over again until I could put my fingers on that in a short space, you know, short period of the music. But that's where it all started for me. I, I don't know why. I was six or seven years old, and I I could hardly wait for that publication to come in each month. And then maybe uh, in the 20s and 30s, that, that's what that, what that period was. In the 40s, my family moved to California, and I stayed in Iowa for the summer with family friends who owned a restaurant next to a bowl of, uh, it had traveling bands on the weekends. 
uh, and I could get up on the roof of the ballroom. There was a little window that I could open, and uh, I was able to watch and hear like Tommy Dorsey, Glenn Miller, Jimmy Lunsford, uh, Sam Donahue, and even territorial bands like uh, Lawrence Wilk. That was what's one of these breaking uh, moments in, in what influenced me in music. Uh, a few months later, I joined the family in LA. Uh, I bought a clarinet for, I think it was 17 bucks and started taking lessons. I, I, I uh, elaborated that in the video, but that's enough for today. I owned mowed lawns and pulled weeds and stuff for the lessons. And uh, after a while, the teacher let me take up sax, because it is the case that if you, you're better off taking up a clarinet if you're gonna play saxophones because of the brochure and the muscles and stuff. Anyway, another, uh, wave from the title I was using, The Breaking Ways of a Musician's Life. Uh, I was in high school at this time and studying basic movie elements, uh, pardon me, uh, music elements. Uh, I felt that I was not moving fast enough and with some very good luck, uh, I started studies with Russ Garcia. Russ was a major influence on the rest of my musical life another wave of the sort of thing that happens to musicians. Uh, my first paid for arrangements after studying Madras was for a barbershop quartet. And uh, the name of the tune was Street of Dreams. I got $7.50 for that. So it's kind of fun if you think about it, if you're a arranger. Uh, what was the first arrangement that you did, the name of it, and how much money did you get for it? It's fun to think about that. My first playing gig was at a veterans hospital, which we heard on the video. Uh, I then, that, that was $3 a night, as it said. But anyway, I started playing in bands around town. For example, Winnie Manone, for those who could remember that. Uh, Joe Venuti, Dick Pierce, Bell Torme, and occasionally I sat on the Alvino Ray Band. This was World War II. One day, here's a big one, boy. One day in the early 40s, I got a call from Stan Kenton. For me, it was like a call from God. You can imagine a 16-year-old tenor sax player getting a call from the greatest band in the country. My dad and I went to the Long Beach Auditorium and we sat through the Bob Hope show, which was radio in those days. The Kenton band was the house band. After the program, my dad and talked over details because he was worried 16-year-olds dropping out of high school going to the band. Stan said, if we leave in the morning, or we do leave in the morning uh, for New Orleans, and if Dwayne doesn't like the band, or if he doesn't work out, I will personally uh, see that he gets home safely. Can you imagine if Dwayne doesn't like the band? <laughs> anyway, so 
so one of the guys on the band was Buddy Childers, and I think he was 18, I was 16, and he helped shoe before me, so to speak, into the band. Um, let's see, the Pope show was on once a week, and in between, uh, we played military bases across the country. Uh, you know, it was a tough life. We're freshening up in the men's room with cold water at the ballroom playing the gig and back on the road to the Atlantic City. <laughs> I never saw the uh, New Orleans. <laughs> it's funny. Anyway, back in LA we played up and down the coast. It was Stan's habit to rehearse the band on the stand after the gig. On one occasion a young man came up in front of the band. He had music papers sticking out of every pocket. Bob's yoga passed out the parts to the original piece called Opus A Dollar 380. That was our first encounter with Mr. Pete Bugalo. In my draft, uh, as, as my draft time was coming up, I took some tests and wound up in the Navy. Uh, I studied radar shipboard repair until the war ended. The Navy transferred me to, into the Great Lakes Band Department. Now we're talking a huge break in terms of musical uh, emphasis. Uh, I can only say that my music experience expanded exponentially. Uh, we had a symphony orchestra, big bands, all sizes of jazz groups, uh, marching bands, we had arrangers, composers. Uh, if you could write, play, and listen to your heart, you could listen and play and write to your heart's content. Discharged from the Navy with a job in electronics from that experience of working on radars. <clears throat> and the GI Bill, I started music at USC. And that's right. <laughs> anyway, after two years at USC, I took advantage of the GI Bill and applied to the École Normale de Musique, Paris, France, to study with Arthur Honecker. I was accepted another of those breaking waves of music While in Paris, Dick Markowitz and I formed a jazz group. Along with our studies, we played in Germany, Belgium, Tunisia, and France. We often backed up great American jazz players like uh, Roy Eldridge, Rex Stewart, uh, James Moody. Anyway, those people were huge superstars in Europe at that time because of the Army had brought jazz to Europe, and when they all left, they were hungry for it. At this point, though, in time, they are contributing greatly to jazz, of course, as you all know. During this time in Paris, I wrote arrangements for Jane Morgan, a guy by the name of Eddie Constantine, who uh, later became a very big French actor. Uh, I wrote dance and musical numbers for the Lido Club, and uh, financially I was able to send for and marry my first wife, which was not Francoise. 
His wife was from Santa Monica, married her in Paris. I did the whole damn thing backwards. I married Francoise, who's French, in Los Angeles. You know? Anyway, back in the USA, I received a commission to write an original jazz album for contemporary records. I wrote from the point of view of, of the classical techniques I had learned. The players were, were Stu Williamson, Bob Eden Olson, Vince DeRosa, Joe Maney, Bill Holman, he's here in the audience, uh, Jimmy Jeffrey, Ralph Pena, marvelous player, and Shelley Maynard. The name of the album was Dwayne Tatro's Jazz from Mars. And I'll ask whoever is back there to play one of the pieces from it.
with all those uh, tools in my hand and, and really didn't know what I was doing, that's probably the most imaginative music that I've written for 30 years at least. Actually, I learned a lot of things how to do it and then it didn't turn out for me as imaginative as that was. Anyway, that's a different side comment. And I must say that <clears throat> during that, when that came out, there were a couple of critics that really panned it. They said it was uh, not jazz. It wasn't jazz, and, and, and it was too uh, too closely, tightly written, and all that sort of thing. With the guys that I described, you know, Shelley Mann and Bill Hong, all these guys. I mean, uh, it couldn't not be jazz. Anyway, I, later years when it was re-released as a uh, jazz classic. Uh, limited jazz classic. I went out in the backyard and to those guys that said, <laughs> they were no longer around. <laughs> anyway, uh, about, uh, I started then ghostwriting. Certainly that, can't, that album thing was uh, one of the huge breaking waves that I talked about. But I began ghostwriting for various film and TV composers. It was a sort I was a sorcerer's apprentice. Eventually, one of the sorcerers opened the door for me, and for the next 30 years, film composing was my career. I remember one occasion I was writing for somebody, and I was writing at night because I had a day job. And so uh, he had me come to Warner Brothers and roll up the score and pass it through that woven fence that they had, because he didn't want me on the lot, you know. <laughs> so that was the role of a ghost writer sometimes. And uh, as I said, someone finally opened doors for me. Uh, in the 90s, I developed cancer problems, different kind of ways. I was out of the game for two, three years, and when my muses came back, the TV game had changed. Directors over 34 years old or so uh, were being weeded out. Synthesizers were in, orchestras were out. Anyway, that's a different kind of way, right? I decided to retire from film and reestablish my classical uh, bent. Since then, I, I've been writing chamber works, orchestral works, and, and concert band pieces for colleges. Uh, recently, I've been receiving commissions for new works. I'm a happy camper. How should I end this? I, my life has been absolutely charmed, marvelous. Each event put me further and further ahead and much of it was unplanned and I, I just can't imagine that. It's like my life is a beautiful play. I'm in the fourth act and I'm anxious to see how it's resolved. Thank you very much. Gentleman, 
And uh, a marvelous teacher. We had in our class, we had you know, like two guys from uh, Turkey. We had an Israeli guy and one from Denmark. Uh, several different types. We all communicated with French because and none of us were, that was not our language. So it was really kind of fun. That humor and stuff like that just didn't quite work sometimes in another language. But he was great to study with, and uh, it, it was a, a marvelous part of my life. Um, my teacher, your friend Mauro Bruno, he orchestrated it for you, didn't he? Yes, he did. I just remember you were on the board with ASMAC with him when he was on the board. Yes, he and brought when, me in. And when did you join the ASMAC board? Well, uh, Mauro brought me into it. And what year? Oh gosh, I don't know. I was a, I was a vice president for 11 years and I was in there before that, so I don't know, 15, 20 years? Something like that. It's probably on record somewhere. Somebody else? No. Oh, okay. What, what was the day job that you did when you were the most Oh, the electronics that I studied in the Navy uh, and come into fruition in, in civilian life. Every, every company had a company name that ended with Tronics. You know, it was just a period when uh, electronics became an important thing as uh, digital stuff has now. So I had the tools to work for people who had electronic companies. We, I worked in a company that made uh, avionic electronics for military uh, usage in airplanes and stuff like that, you know. Bill Ross had a question over here. Oh, Bill. Bill? Okay. Hey, Bill, is it you? Uh, right over here, Dwayne. Yeah, I was just curious. I, I'm so naive. I thought ghostwriting was something that was relatively new. Can you talk about that, your experiences? Were, was yeah. that something that was more common? Yeah, ghostwriting was... Uh, some people had frowned on it. Uh, in, in our business, we have no apprenticeship way to work our ways into writing, composing for films. So ghostwriting was a marvelous way to learn the pressures, pressures that the composer is under with the business part of the business. And uh, it was a great learn the problems of time and writing so much music each day and so on. A lot of things you couldn't get anywhere else in school or anywhere, you know, so I never felt it was a bad thing. I think if you, uh, uh, if you were careful not to become simply a ghostwriter, which could happen if you didn't want the pressures and so on, uh, it was a marvelous way to get in, and eventually somebody gives you a hand and, and, uh, and helps you into it. So I never resented it. I don't know whether that was your question or not. No, that is my question, and I agree. It's I, I think it's been a, a helpful way for people to, to work their way in, so that's, that's terrific. Yeah, the other way is uh, marry the producer's daughters. <laughs> <laughs> Anybody else? <laughs> oh, I've satisfied you all. It's my pleasure to introduce you to Glenn Jordan.
you know, when I was younger, I went to these and it would always be telegrams. You know, so-and-so sends a telegram saying, he's sorry, he can't be there. Uh, today, my longtime engineer, Larold Rebin, who was gonna come, sent me a thing on Facebook that said, I can't make it, here's directions in case you forgot. He pasted a cartoon of a conductor looking at a music stand, and it says, directions, wave arms frantically till music stops, then turn around and bow. <laughs> so, that was my telegram. Um, I grew up in uh, the music capital of the Northeast, Canterbury, New Hampshire. <laughs> Pipeline to Hollywood. Um, 800 people in the town. The uh, city hall was a drawer on Dick Halligan's front porch and a desk. If you had to go get a town permit or something, you'd go out to the French porch, you'd pull out the drawer, fill out the permit, close the drawer, and you'd get the permit. Um, I joined the union in Concord, New Hampshire, union number one. And uh, you may have heard of some people from that union besides me. Uh, Tom Rush, who's a very successful singer in the 60s, folk singer. Bonnie Raitt still maintains her uh, union membership there. And um, another local composer who's a few years older than me by the name of John Adams, who you may have heard of, he actually used to be a milk customer of my uh, family's milk group. We grew up on a dairy farm. And uh, I had no idea that John Adams was that John Adams until I was out here and I was having dinner with a friend of mine from high school and I mentioned this article about in the, the LA Times and she said, oh yeah, you know John, he was my brother Frank's best friend. Well, I don't remember him. He was there, he was he and I were in high school together. Um, as I started to think about what I was gonna to say today, I realized that if I was doing this in my 30s and 40s, I'd be very much talking about the gigs. You know, that I did this gig, I did that gig. But it's reached a certain point for me where I kind of look at my career more as the people that, you know, I was lucky enough to work with, lucky enough to know, people who reached out and, and saw something in me that they thought they could work with, uh, who they could work with. Um, at the ASMAC, Ascari uh, ASCAP banquet this year, there was a moment when Dan Foliar got up and spoke about the people who passed this year. And of course, Dan, Ray Charles, um, Jimmy Haskell, and Ray Colcourt. And those were all guys I knew, those were all guys I worked for. Um, I was on the board when Van was president, and uh, at that point I'd stopped being the singing guitar player and was a full-time arranger composer. And Van came up to me and said, Glenn, I'm doing a live gig. It's gonna be my last gig as an arranger, and I'd like you to play guitar on it. I said, Van, I, I, you know, I, let me give you a couple of names, because I haven't been practicing. And, you know, I'm, I consider myself an arranger and a composer now. 
He said, no, Glenn, I want you to do my last game. So I immediately went home and began practicing. Um, and I think there's only three of us left from that game. I think Rick Baptist, Chuck Berghoffer, and I, I think everybody else is gone. But with Vance passing, I realized what an important event that was for me, that Van asked me to be there, and Van wanted me to play guitar. That's something that's very, very precious to me. Um, John, this John, uh, did the shot and I'll show it John. And uh, before I was officially the guitar player on the show, uh, I used to get these calls on Sunday night from Danny, the guitar player, who was an old friend of mine, actually introduced me to my wife. Um, and Danny would call me and say, you know, I'm not feeling very well. Can you go in and sub for me tomorrow morning on the session? Well, that meant that Danny bumped into uh, a bunch of Peruvian marching powder over the weekend, or there was a guest artist the next day and there was actual notes on the chart. And uh, so I used to go in and do the show when Ray was musical director, and the next year, um, John took over as musical director, and um, Danny was no longer on the gig, so they called me and said, look, you did a great job last year, come, come play guitar for us on the show. I said, okay. And they said, now, this is very clear, you're not in the band, you're just subbing. I said, that's great, that's what I do, I'm a guitar player. So I showed up, did the show, and uh, had a great time. And at the end of it, at this point, the band had toured for eight weeks, they'd taken a week or two off, done the TV show for four months, and had two weeks off, and we're about to go on tour again. So the manager walked into a room with the band and said, okay, quick show of hands, who wants to take your two-week vacation and audition guitar players? And they looked at each other and they said, okay, who wants to hire Glenn? And all the hands went up. And uh, I was out on the road with them for the next five years. And uh, it was a timely thing because it was 1980. Yamaha just invented the CS80, which meant now all those sessions that I was doing in the late 70s with the before guitar players and one monophonic synth there would now be one guitar player, he's usually Larry Carlton, Dean Parks, and uh, three polyphonic synths. So it was timely for me because it allowed me to get out of town. And, um, and that's when I switched, at the end of the Shahanaki, is when I switched over to being a full-time composer. One of the first guys to give me a gig, and I had mixed feelings about saying this, was Saban. Haim Saban. And uh, as far as I know, I was the first guy to ever get royalties on Haim. Uh, because, well, that's a long story. And I, but, uh, I did actually get writer's royalties from Haim. Anyway, every time I bump into him, which is infrequent, Haim always says to me, you know that, that cue you did for uh, Ghostbusters, the cartoon show? And uh, he says, boy, that's a great cue. So, uh, Breen, if you could play Big Monster, please.
my youngest son at that point was watching a lot of cartoons, he was that age. And I remember walking in into his room as that was playing on, on the Ghostbusters and uh, um, really enjoyed seeing it on TV and uh, knowing that I knew somebody who created it. Um, now, one of the things I neglected to mention, which is really one of the key elements of my musical career, was when I got to town, I contacted Jimmy Haskell, who I didn't know from anybody. Uh, you know, I'd never met him. I knew all his arrangements. I'd taken down everything he'd done for Skilly Dan. Um, and I went and talked to him, and, and I said, you know, I've really got a lot of different things I'd like to be able to write. And he said, well, bring five examples. So I did, I wrote five albums, and they were really eclectic. You know, one was like the Bartok String Quartet, another was music by the band, uh, with their out of tune, you know, Midwestern play badly horn parts, and, um, and a whole bunch of stuff. And, and Jimmy listened to it. Yeah, this is when Jimmy's doing, you know, 16 shows a day, and, and uh, you know, busy, doesn't even begin to describe him. And uh, he said, well, there's only one person in town I know who can teach you all this stuff, and it's Spud Murphy. So I went, and I met Spud, and uh, we had an interesting conversation. Spud said, where are you from? He said, New Hampshire. He says, uh, oh yeah, I know New Hampshire. He said, uh, where'd you play? I said, well, I used to play at uh, Hampton Beach Casino. I said, oh yeah, I played there with Benny Goodman in 1937. He says, where else? I said, Old Orchard Beach. He said, oh yeah, I played there with the Matt Hallett band. Krupa was the drummer, da da da. da. And, he, and he, I said, and then there's the uh, Com Commodore Ballroom in Lowell. And he said, got this distant look in his eyes. And he said, oh yeah, I remember Lowell. There's these two sisters I used to have orgies with there. <laughs> that was my introduction to Spud. I, of course, you know, some 20-year-old kid turned bright red. And, uh, but Spud was a character. And uh, I studied with Spud for the next seven years and graduated from the course and uh, just totally changed my, what I was capable of writing. Um, the other thing Spud did, and I'll never forget this, um, Spud would have a birthday party every year, and uh, Artie Shaw would be there, Benny Carter, Van, um, Herbie Hancock often, um, and all the students. And so we'd eat, it's at this really bad Chinese restaurant that I still hate to this day, but if Spud liked it, and uh, after the, the meal, Spud would stand up and he would make a speech. And his birthday speech, would be talking about his students and what they'd done that year. And, um, you know, this Tom can attest to have Spud Murphy stand in front of legends in the music business to say how well you were doing was just beyond belief. And that's the person Spud was. And uh, it's truly one of the blessings of my life to be able to study with him. I should say I'm one of nine people licensed to teach the course. Another one is Tom Creek. So um, it's, it's really been a blessing to, to have Spud and his course in my life. Um, I should mention the ASMAC board too. Um, the first time I was on the board was 
when John and I were the young kids on the board, I think in the late 90s, um, Van, Alexander, Horace Silver, Pete Rubelow, um, George Weil, Sid Miller. Uh, you just walk in these rooms and then there's all the names from your favorite albums. Uh, got a great story. One of my best friends, a guy that I played in a bunch of bands with, was a huge big band guy. And on my first real gig, I stayed at his beach house, his parents' beach house. Every morning I'd wake up and there'd just be this big band stuff. You know, I'm a rock and roll guy. I'm not, you know, not a jazz guy then. And uh, there'd be this big band stuff playing. And it would be Les Brown at the Palladium. So he would play it. I'd give him a hard time about it. But the next morning he'd be playing again. And uh, so Branch came out to visit me about 15 years ago. And uh, I said, well, you know, I'll introduce you to Spud. And, and uh, I called. Spud wasn't home. And uh, turns out Spud, at 92 years old, was on tour in China with some friends of his. And so I said, well, I'll call Van Alexander. And Branch goes, the Van Alexander? I said, yeah. And he said, the one who did all the arrangements on Les Brown at the Palladium? So this album that was, you know, I would wake up to every morning and grumble about was, was uh, arranged by Van. So we took him out to lunch, and, and Van was gracious. You, you guys all know what I'm talking about. And, and, uh, but as soon as, as soon as Branch started saying stuff like, you know, in the second eight of this chorus, suddenly you go down to just three saxes. Why did you do that? And, and Van was just in heaven. You know, he, he uh, it was just such a, a great treat to let Branch meet Van, but also remind Van how beloved he was by so many people. And it was just one of those rare afternoons that you'll remember for the rest of your life. And uh, it was, you know, it was great to bring a good friend together with a good friend. So, um, I also should mention Albert Harris. Albert, uh, I studied orchestration with Albert. Another guy who was incredibly gracious, wonderful to study with, and could stretch a one-hour lesson in four hours like that, you know, and, and really didn't begrudge the time and, and um, occasionally even talk about music. You know, it was, uh, he, he was a great storyteller. Um, so, one of the things, I have a neighbor who's a, uh, an actor, which means he has a certain amount of time on his hands. And uh, it's taken up yoga and Tai Chi. And he has a, um, a, a person he studies with, a, a Japanese um, yoga master in his 80s. And he once made a statement to David, when David passed it along to me, which is this. If you're over 50 years old, which I almost qualify for, and you're not teaching, you're a thief. And, and when he said that to me, I was taken aback, but he said, you've basically taken the knowledge and the energy and the love of your teachers and stopped them. And at the time I was teaching very little, one or two students, 
and at the untimely death of, of Dave Bloomberg, I suddenly found myself with about five students who had been studying the EIS course with, uh, with David. And so it was kind of all hands on deck. I began teaching and found I just loved it. It was just, you get to meet via Skype, you get to meet students from all over the world um, who love the same things you do. They want to know the same things that you wanted to know. And uh, I'm sure Tom can speak to this too. You know, when you were studying with Spud, it would make you crazy because you'd go, see this thing you did here? Go back and review page 222, paragraph four, letter B. And you go, geez, how's he know that stuff? Well, now I catch myself. I've got about 10 students right now. Now I catch myself going, you know what, see this thing right here? Go back and look at it. You know, so I've become, certainly I've become spud, but I've become that teacher that says, go back and look at 202 and review this. And uh, it's an incredible feeling. Um, you know, it's funny to talk to them. Um, I have a student, Tel Aviv, right now, who desperately wants to do game music. I mean, he just lives for the idea of doing game music. And uh, the other day he said to me, you know, I'm a big fan of Gary Scheinman's. I said, oh, I was talking to Gary last night, you know, at the, at the ASCAP Awards. And uh, it's sort of like we live in an enchanted city. You know, we know Bill Ross, you know what I mean? Bill's one who, who my students love to talk about. And uh, I, I really still feel that way. You know, it's uh, um, to walk in. I've got friends who work with McCartney, and, and uh, to be able to walk into Paul's rehearsals to see my friends and have Paul wave to me and say, hey, Glenn, how's it going? It, it's pretty cool, you know, even now. So um, it is kind of a magical place. Um, let me play a whole bunch of music. Let me play you a couple things. Um, Here's the thing I did on guitar. Uh, if you could play as the moon sails by, please, Brian. This is kind of spud with Jeff Beck throwing.
Um, two quick other things I need to mention. One is Pee Wee's Playhouse, which I was musical director of, or, or I like to call it uh, musical lifeguard. Um, philosophically, Paul, his intent was to literally have every episode of the Playhouse scored by a new composer. So I've been doing some work for Steve Binder, who's the executive producer, and I called Steve and said, I'd really like to work on the show. He said, well, yeah, that's a real possibility. He said, but, uh, you know, it's just going to be one composer per show and a new guy the next show. And I said, well, you need a musical director. And Steve, I could, I could feel the wheels turning in Steve's head, and he said, yeah, you're right. So he went in and, and he got on the job as musical director of the show. And it was really fun because it was, um, you know, Everybody you could imagine, Danny Elfman did it at one episode. Um, Mark Mothersbaugh did a bunch. Um, but the second season I was working on the show, Paul said, I need a list of some new people. So I brought a list in, on the list was Mark Snow. And I hadn't met Mark at that point. And he said, oh yeah, let's use Mark. I met him at a party. I love Mark, he's a great guy. I said, okay, so I called Mark. I said, uh, Paul would like to meet with you. Can you come over to the post group? He said, absolutely. So he came over. We spotted the show together. Paul came in and said, hi, Mark. How are you doing? Good to see you. And left. About 30 seconds after he left the room, the phone rang. He says, Glenn, it's Paul. Come up here right away. I did. He said, that's not Mark Snow. I said, yeah, it is. He says, yeah, no, 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 Mark Snow, I met him at a party. You know, he's the guy that co-wrote some of the stuff on Footloose. I said, no, that's Tommy Snow. And he said, oh, can we use Tommy? I said, yeah, we could probably get Tommy too, but we've already started a deal with Mark. And uh, so Mark did the show. Paul was tickled as, as, you know, Mark did his usual great job. But that became a really good relationship for me. And, and speaking in terms of ghosting, uh, I did a bunch of ghosting for Mark. And um, never so, I, I did a few things on the X-Files, but they were usually weird things like songs and stuff like that that didn't fit Mark's palette. But I did most of the, the Lone Gunman with Mark. And uh, I also did this show called Dark Justice that Mark was one of three composers on. And uh, Mark called me and said, look, I'm just, I've got a movie, I've got this show, I've got that show, I need you to do the final episode of Dark Justice. I said, okay, he says, it's a two hour, you know, special. I said, okay. So he sent me the videos, the, the, all the music editing stuff, and I started working, and for some reason the first cue just didn't sit with him. It was like, you can, the phone would ring and you could hear Mark worrying before he said hello, you know. And uh, we got through the show, set it in, and I did hear from Mark and I called him after two days. I said, so what's up? He said, yeah, the producer just called me. He said, it's the best, best score I've ever done for the show. Thanks very much. <laughs> and in fairness to Mark, he's incredibly gracious about that. I mean, that's... Uh, you know, it was, uh, he, he was just always bent over backwards to be fair and uh, to be helpful. And uh, there's a point a while ago, I take great pride in this, um, that um, 
I was trying to get a gig with John Mayer. His guitar player, one of his guitar players was leaving. And I was kind of the perfect fit for it because I sing about a third higher than him and I don't care who I play rhythm guitar for. And uh, so I sent him a bunch of my work, both as a guitar player and as a composer because I've heard rumors that he wants to start, you know, maybe being involved with some orchestral stuff. And one of the things I took great pride is I had five people on the uh, letter as references. I had Mark, uh, Jeff Baxter from the Dewey Brothers and Steely Dan, um, John Cassette, who's the executive producer of the Grammys, um, Robert Klein, who's the former head of television at uh, CBS, and, and Bill Cross was very gracious. And um, I heard back from John's manager and he said, uh, well, the bad news is the guitar player's not leaving, so there's no gig. He says, but John said to be sure to tell you that you hang out with very nice and very, very wonderful people. And uh, so I, I really took that as a, I took great pride in being able to have all those people sit and recommend me. So um, let me play two more pieces of music and we'll call it an afternoon. Um, if you could put up number four, uh, Rena. Somebody asked me recently at a music library if I could do something in the spirit of the early Danny Elfman stuff. And this is what I did. This is mixed by my friend John Maddox down here. Spud always used to tell this story 
when he was working as a staff composer in Columbia at two o'clock on Friday afternoon, his boss came to him and said, so when's the uh, concerto gonna be ready? Spud said, what concerto? And he said, did someone not tell you about the concerto? And he said, no, that's the first I've heard of it. He said, we need a concerto for E-flat clarinet. Monday morning, the session starts at nine, uh, and it's, it's in this film we're shooting, and it's, it's a visual. We have to have it done. So when they worked at, at Columbia, you worked nine to five. You know, five o'clock, you were done. So they commissioned Spud to do overtime through the weekend. He went home, and he wrote this, this E-flat clarinet concerto. So he shows up Monday with it done, and uh, gives it to the copyist. It's all ready to go. They do the first hour, they don't record it. Second hour, they don't record it. And Spud said, uh, boy, I hope you're gonna do this thing, because it's tough. You know, it's gonna take some guys and some time to, uh, to rehearse this. It's not just gonna be playing. And the guy said, oh, didn't anybody tell you? Spud said, why? So they canceled the concerto. So Spud spent a weekend writing an E-flat clarinet concerto that he never got to hear. So this next cue is a thing I did for one of the Reagan documentaries I did. And it's this very touching scene where Ronald Reagan reads uh, the letter, the statement, that uh, he announces that he has Alzheimer's disease. Now the Reagan family won't allow that footage to be used. So what the actor, David, who I mentioned earlier, who did the voiceover, read the, read the letter and did a great job at it. He's in one of those American voices that sounds great. And so they gave it to him. It was the last thing they had to do in this documentary. So I took some time and really did it well and got ready, ready to put it into place. And they said, oh, by the way, there's a new video coming up to you. We've cut 30 seconds off the Reagan letter. We've spent it out and so on and so forth. Oh, okay. So here's, uh, Here's a piece I wrote for that called The Alzheimer's Letter.
this is, when I came out here to be the singing guitar player, and the two guys who really influenced me were McCartney and Todd Rundgren, because they would write these incredible records and produce these incredible records where it's just them. So that's something I really tried to do. And this next uh, piece is Glenn Jordan Orchestra and Choir. Everything on here is me. And uh, if you play One Perfect Wave, and, and after this piece, I'll say thank you very much. Kim says you're dismissed. And uh, thanks for listening. Thanks for, very much for honoring me. And there's a lot of people in this room I feel very strongly and positively for. And it's just nice to be here and, and, and have you share your, your personas with me. So, bring it if you would. The sun comes up on my lagoon while ever sage blue Thank you for listening to another ASMAC podcast. We welcome your feedback at www.asmac.org. This is Kim Richmond, the president of ASMAC, and on behalf of the board, I would like to invite you to attend our events, including luncheons, master classes, First Wednesday's workshops, and our annual Golden Score Awards Banquet. For a complete list of our podcasts and DVDs, please visit our website at www.asmac.org. Many thanks to Larry Goldman of Balboa Studios for recording this talk. Editing was done by myself to prepare for broadcasting.